0: Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture.
1: Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us as we wrap up another week. So glad that you are with us and letting us be part of your day. We thank you very much for joining us. And here's what we'll be talking about. Could EPA be on the verge of granting more small refinery exemption to refiners that have requested passed, they've been rejected in the past, but now these so-called gap waivers, after some action by the Department of Energy, could open the door for EPA to grant these waivers. That has uh, a lot of people in the renewable fuels industry very, very concerned. We'll talk with the Vice President of Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board about this uh, situation. We'll talk markets, talk a lot about China, the situation there. With Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with X. And we're going to tell you about a ruling from the Department of Energy that could help drive demand for corn. Yeah, it could be a significant ruling, and we'll tell you about it a little bit later on. The use of corn as an acceptable feedstock. We'll tell you what that's about a little bit later on in today's program. But first, we'll get a Washington update from Jerry Hackstrom with the Hackstrom Report. And Jerry, it sure doesn't sound like on what is to be the deadline to get something done. doesn't sound like they're gonna get uh, this coronavirus package done today.
2: Uh, no, it sure doesn't. The uh, Senate has now also gone home. They're not recessed, they're like the House. They're subject to the call of the of the leader uh, for a vote, if there's a package, um, but the meeting, the last meeting last night did not go well. There's talk about uh, President Trump issuing executive orders, uh, but it's unclear since he's up at his golf club in New Jersey, uh, you know what uh, what he might do. Uh, I keep thinking these people who have lost their $600 a week in unemployment benefits are are going to start some sort of movement because. Uh, there'll be a lot of people around the country who have a hard time making their rents and their mortgages uh, without that money, but that 's where we stand right now
1: and where we stand is is politics as usual t- in today 's world where you basically have both sides pointing fingers at each other and nothing getting in
2: that 's right now we do have one positive point on the uh, sort of on the agriculture and nutrition side. Uh, And that is that four Republican senators have now said that they believe there should be uh, an increase in in nutrition benefits. Uh, And most important is uh, Senate Agriculture Chairman Pat Roberts, who has told the Associated Press that he spoke with, with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell about that. Now, Senate Agriculture Ranking Member Debbie Stabenow, the top Democrat on the committee, had said she won't support aid for farmers if you don't do something for the people who need food. And so this is a positive step that if they get beyond their big problems, uh, that, uh, that you could have a deal on agriculture that would work.
1: Yeah, so there's some movement there. But as you said, it's the bigger issues that are keeping anything from really moving forward.
2: Yeah, and the biggest issue apparently is how much aid there should be to state and local governments. The Democrats said the state and local governments uh, need the money, but the uh, re- some of the Republicans are saying we don't want to increase the deficit that much. Uh, so maybe uh, maybe the fact that they've gone home will will uh, motivate them to uh, to reach a final conclusion here. Uh, we just don't know. There's also also Senator Rounds, um, uh, or no, not Senator Rounds. Well, Senator Rounds suggested that Senator, excuse me, that the president should put out the executive orders and see how the House House reacts to that. But it's unclear what the what the president can do, what he has the legal power to do with executive orders, because of course the power of the purse is really in the hands of the Congress.
1: So both sides kind of waiting to see which one blinks first. But in the meantime, as you said maybe the fact that they are going back home, they'll hear from people back home. Maybe that'll get some movement.
2: Yes, well, that's I'm, I'm sort of uh, I'm sort of hoping uh, hoping for that. Uh, the other big news this week was that Senator Grassley said the word ethanol should be put into the the list of things that the Agriculture Secretary can spend money on. At the moment, the, the, the Senate bill only says uh, he can spend the, the $20 billion uh, on many different things, but it would include aid to processors. But the word ethanol isn't in there, and that makes the ethanol industry nervous. But Grassley also said that Secretary Perdue seems to be concerned that if he helps the ethanol plants, then other kinds of, of processors are going to want aid as well, and there'll be a question of where do you stop and do you have enough money?
1: Yeah, you know Senator Grassley told us before he's not been able to get a commitment from Secretary Purdue to help the ethanol industry. So I think the ethanol industry is right to be concerned that if the money is just going to USDA for them to divvy up, there's a good chance that uh, ethanol could be left out again.
2: Yes, yes, that's uh, that's right. And and uh, um, today I just heard uh, President Trump on TV saying criticizing Joe Biden, saying one, he doesn't like our kind of energy. Well, I assume that that is a criticism of Biden because he talks about alternatives to oil. So President Trump's commitments to the oil industry are still very strong.
1: Uh, meanwhile, and we're also going to be talking in our next segment about these uh, possible uh, granting of these so-called gap year waivers to the RFS. We'll be talking about that. That's a key issue. Uh, But I just want to get your thoughts, uh, Jerry. If they don't pull out some kind of miraculous uh, uh, compromise today, uh, going back home isn't the same as it used to be. As you said, they're not technically in recess. They could actually get something done even after today fairly quickly if they wanted to or if they came to some kind of decision.
2: Oh, yes. well. Uh, both, uh, both Senate Leader McConnell and, and uh, House Majority Leader uh, Hoyer have, get, have told their members, you, if we need to call you, you'll have 24 hours to get back to Washington. They would have to return to Washington to pass the legislation. But, you know, when Congress wants to act fast, it can
1: yeah, just too often they don't want to. You know, the only thing they seem to be fast at is getting to a TV camera or a microphone to do an interview. That's, <laughs> both sides. That's they, They're very quick at getting to those and getting those things done without getting of any real work done, answer. it seems like. Yeah, everyone trying to get yeah. their point across and their spin on it. Jerry, thanks a lot. Uh, we'll talk again the next week, and hopefully we'll have some results in this uh, to talk about then. Thank you very much. Have a good weekend.
2: Yes, well, and you, and you too. A good you. A good Jerry, afternoon, or good morning. G-
1: <laughs> All right, Jerry Hackstrom with the Hackstrom Report. So it doesn't look like, barring some something miraculous here, they're going to get anything done on this coronavirus package. Uh, Today, So we'll see what happens as it goes into kind of overtime, if you will, already overtime for those uh, looking for those unemployment benefits. So we'll see what they can work out. We're also going to see what is EPA going to do with these uh, so-called gap year requests for small refinery exemptions to the RFS? Is this going to be kind of put in limbo until after the election or something going to happen before then? A lot at stake for the uh, not only the ethanol industry but the biodiesel industry as well. Up next, we'll talk with Kurt Kavarik, Vice President Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA.
0: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams.
1: So, not only has EPA not followed the court ruling about their mishandling of small refinery exemptions to the RFS. Now they seem poised to maybe grant even more so-called gap year waivers, retroactive waivers that have already been rejected, but now could be in play again. Let's talk about it with Kurt Kavarik, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Kurt, Kurt, good to talk with you again. It's almost like a bad situation getting worse, and, and EPA, instead of following what the court told them to do, uh, they, they seem to want to double down or be willing to double down on what has been uh, ruled to be uh, a wrong practice, a wrong uh, uh, method here of going about these uh, these exemptions. And I guess the Department of Energy has kind of opened the door for this now.
0: You've you hit the nail on the head there, Mike. Glad to be with you this morning. We all viewed uh, this Tenth Circuit decision um, in January as kind of a course correction. We, we recognize that. This EPA, particularly under Administrator Pruitt, decided to hand out favors, regardless of the law, regardless of the statute, to his refiner friends. We viewed this court decision that essentially rebuked EPA on uh, three different counts of how they were handling the small refiner exemption program as an opportunity for Administrator Wheeler and the Trump administration to demonstrate, hey, this, this was wrong, let's make it right they not only have they not done that, as you said, they've entertained this nonsensical approach of considering 85 uh, or 87 uh, I'm sorry, 50, 57, 57, not 87, 57 small refiner exemptions going back to 2011 to try to skirt this court decision. and it appears as though Department of Energy and now the EPA are willing partners. In this scheme. Not not arbiters of the law, uh, not not trying to implement this as Congress intended, but actually a partner to the scheme of trying to skirt the requirements under the renewable fuel standard as directed by Congress uh, in 2007.
1: Could they be, as some have suspected, basically just wanting to stall till after the election, basically holding out the the opportunity or the possibility to the oil industry, the refiners, you might get these exemptions and at the same time saying to the renewable fuels industry, well, we haven't granted them yet and kind of leave this limbo till after the election. There's no
0: doubt the intention right now is to not make uh, any of the parties upset between now and November 3rd. I think that's the key motivation uh, for this EPA. I I think most view these uh, 58 uh, gap year small refiner exemptions as a bit of a hot, hot potato. I don't think Administrator Wheeler wanted to consider them, so that's why he sent them over to DOE almost immediately, and I think it's the reason DOE got them back to EPA as quickly as they did. Everyone recognizes the the idiocy of even considering these, so no one wants them on their plate. But I, I would say this, Mike, this is the is key issue for your listeners who have an interest in the ag economy, an ethanol plant, a biodiesel plant, or just want to see the success of the of the ag industry uh writ large we can't we can't let them get by with not making a decision on these until november 3rd because if they do you know we essentially lose all leverage if if epa thinks they have uh authority to grant these and they need to be granted let's grant them before the election so that the voters have an opportunity to voice their their opposition or their concern about that decision if they don't think they should be granted you know what? Deny them. Give people an opportunity to react to what EPA does here. Because the fact of the matter is, if this goes beyond November 3rd, there's no telling. I'm not I'm not predicting where this election is going to go, but I know that this administration feels like they probably have a lot more leash to run with uh, between November and January of, of this year, regardless of how they want to do that. And we're not going to have uh, much in the way of uh, ways to hold their feet to the fire if, if that's the case. So I would say... You know, get on the phone to your representative or your senator and tell them this has to be dealt with before November because we we have no, uh, there's no way to uh, hold them accountable in that period after November and before January, regardless of how this election shakes out.
1: Yeah, I mean, no way of knowing, but you'd have to say, based on the track record of EPA on these small refiner exemptions, that the likelihood that they would grant them after the election is, a, is pr- the percentage would seem to be pretty high based on the way they've handled it so far.
0: I would absolutely agree with you. And as you've seen in the track record of the last two years, uh, if, if EPA is left up to their own devices, they'll do exactly what the refiners ask them to do. There's no doubt where their interests lie. Our our uh, kind of safety valve on this has always been the president of the United States. The president ran on and, and, and has tried to maintain his commitment to support farmers, support the ag uh, community and support biofuels producers every time we get him involved at the end of the day it's we end up in a better spot than where we were before it started but the the problem here is the EPA and if they're left to their own devices, there's no telling what they will do uh, to help their refiner friends.
1: talking with Kurt Kavarik with the National biodiesel board Kurt, we've been talking with the ethanol industry and they saw an improvement as people were starting to get back out and driving and fuel demand was picking up. And now of course things have kind of slowed a bit again with these spikes in in these positive tests for coronavirus. Uh, So there's concern about moving forward. Where are we with the biodiesel industry as far as demand and and the biodiesel plants around the country?
0: Sure. I appreciate the opportunity to give you an update there. So as we saw kind of during March and April, uh, demand was reduced anywhere from 20 to 30%. I think EIA now is predicting that uh, demand for diesel for the full calendar year might be off by about 10%. What's been more harmful to our industry uh, than kind of demand destruction is just supply chain just disruptions. As you know, uh, our feedstocks are very diverse, whether it's distillers corn oil from ethanol plants or soybean oil or animal fats or used cooking oil from restaurants as those industries were affected, as we saw meat processors shut down, as you see restaurants shut down, we have a lot of producers in different parts of the country whose supply chains for feedstock were just entirely upended. So they've suffered the, the, the biggest economic challenge during this this time period. As you mentioned, things are picking up on the demand side, which is positive, but we're also concerned about this you know new wave of increased cases in many rural areas in many states uh, like Texas and Florida and others, where the demand for diesel is, is significantly higher. So we're I wouldn't say we're out of the woods yet. That's why we're still uh, speaking to Congress about relief for the industry to help us uh, navigate this, this challenging year. Uh, things are looking up, but I would say we're not out of the woods yet.
1: Yeah, that brings us back to the uh, stalemate over the coronavirus uh, assistance package and the issue of, the Senate approach to give the money to, eat, uh, to USDA and let them decide how that $20 billion is put out for agriculture. With no specifications where it goes, I know there's a lot of concern in the biofuels industry whether or not uh, you would be included in, in this round or not.
0: That's right. While we appreciate the, the, the inclusion of agriculture processors in, in their definition of eligible entities uh, for that $20 billion, Our concern is that it just doesn't go uh, far enough in in expressing the support for the biofuels industry in this this package. We've got great champions in Senator Grassley and Ernst and Klobuchar and others who've been speaking out about the need for uh, specific assistance in the bill. We're hopeful that uh, at the end of the day that they'll be successful, but quite frankly, it's it's hard to see a path forward for this effort in the Senate right now. I know uh, senators have been uh, sent home and, and been told to be uh, responsive within 24 hours. But um, it, it looks pretty glim right now in terms of uh, what a deal would look like and, and how, how quickly they'll be able to come to one here in the near term.
1: And one other note, Kurt, uh, concerning EPA, you still don't know what the RVO levels are going to be for next year, right, for renewable fuels.
0: You're exactly right. We're just This EPA is layering one level of, of business uncertainty on top of another, and this is harmful for, you know, our feedstock providers, soybean growers, and our biodiesel producers. It's clear that the RVO is being held hostage now uh, by one party or another, so it's likely to be, <clears throat> excuse me, tied up uh, and delayed even further.
1: Yeah, so just just another concern, another challenge facing the biofuels industry as we wait for action from EPA. Kurt Kavark, Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Kurt, thanks for joining us, and uh, hopefully next time we talk, uh, we'll be talking about what has been passed and what has been done, uh, some action in both Congress and EPA. We'll, we'll talk about that at that time. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks, Mike. Glad to be with you.
1: All right. Kurt Kavark with the National biodiesel board so still so much just up in the air still waiting for decisions Uh, the uh, biofuels industry uh, really at a crossroads here and these decisions will impact uh, the future for the industry well we're still at a crossroads too with when it comes to uh, trade with china Uh, the sales ahead of last year but uh, certainly not on pace to meet the phase one uh commitments in that trade deal so where does that leave us and what do stock levels what do we know about their their stock levels in china and how that will impact their future purchases we'll talk about that next with arlen suderman with stone x here on aoa
0: information america's farmers and ranchers need to know adams on agriculture now back to mike adams
1: Always good to talk it over with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for Stone X. All right, Arlen, let's uh, start as we so often do with China. Is this a glass half-empty, half-full situation? I mean, they're buying and kind of ahead of last year's pace, such as it is, but uh, not really on pace to meet these uh, phase one trade agreement levels. So how do how do we look at these purchases?
3: Yeah, one of the reasons they're having trouble reaching the goal is because prices are so low uh... they should have agreed to volumes instead of value uh... maybe they could have they would have looked a lot closer but it is a problem uh... it's interesting to note that uh... uh there's been a big focus in china of late on its need to be self-sufficient and uh, uh, we've talked before about their ongoing fear of coronavirus shutting down ports that they need to import from in other words shutting down brazil's ports shutting down our ports they still believe that'll happen and uh, we saw President uh, Xi Jinping tour corn farms uh, two weeks ago. Last week, we saw the vice premier tour corn Farms. This has really risen to the top of their agenda. Um, They don't like to be dependent on other countries, particularly during this time. And then this week, there was an article in the state-run media about China's need to be self-sufficient. They said that they were more than self-sufficient for wheat and rice, and they largely are. They just import quality wheat in order to blend with their lower-quality wheat. Um, but they said they were ninety five sufficient percent sufficient on corn it 's probably closer to ninety percent, but this does suggest that they are very reluctant to increase imports. they want to improve production rather than increase imports. They want to be self sufficient. The article again mentioned the problems of coronavirus threatening to shut down ports that they need to import from. They may not have a choice not because of the floods, but because of the dryness that we're seeing in a couple of key provinces in northern China reducing the size of the corn crop. We'll know more next month, but it appears that dryness may have been severe enough to reduce the size of this year's crop, so they still may need to yet ratchet up imports of U.S. corn, but they, they don't want to.
1: Always hard to get uh, accurate numbers out of China, but what are your people telling you about their uh, Corn and bean stocks?
3: Well, the permanent reserve of corn in China, nobody knows. We haven't been able to find any sources that have any idea, but the current sentiment is to increase that and not let it go down. The temporary reserve. Based on our sources, and, and our sources have been very accurate on this in the past. That's what they've been auctioning corn out of at 4 million metric tons or 157 million bushels per week, and that is on pace to be emptied in the next three weeks. So they're running tight on that. Um, the cash market would seem to indicate that supplies are very tight as well. This week's auction. Did see the price drop a little bit it was still above seven dollars a bushel and still about a dollar above where the auction started this spring um, but they really tightened restrictions because there were some speculative companies buying corn like road construction companies buying corn you know it's probably speculative buying and so they're really tightening the restrictions trying to limit that and that did see the price come down a little bit but again all four million metric tons sold
1: I have to admit, if it wasn't for my granddaughter, I probably wouldn't know what TikTok even is. But uh, I see her glued to her phone and, and doing all kinds of dancing and everything in front of it with TikTok. Who would have thought that TikTok could impact trade between the two countries?
3: Yeah, exactly right. I'm I'm with you. I wouldn't have known either. Uh and I guess maybe it's bold to uh sign an executive order to uh ban TikTok in the United States within forty five days if something doesn't change ahead of an election, but that's what the president did. Um and WeChat as well. And so that is going to make things tense as we go into the meeting a week from tomorrow. Um, It's a virtual meeting between uh, Robert Lighthizer, our trade representative, and their vice premier uh, to talk about progress on the phase one trade agreement. I think there will be a lot of rhetoric. I'm largely going to ignore the rhetoric from both sides because it's going to be for the value of the media position. Um, I'm going to watch what happens out of it. I still expect that both sides want to continue to keep the trade doors open because both sides benefit from that, although you're going to hear rhetoric to the contrary, probably. And, uh, But I think that coming out of it, we still will see trade happening, maybe not to the level we'd like to see, probably on the pace that we've been seeing lately.
1: We're talking with Arlen Suterman with StoneX. All right, Arlen, we're into that time of year where uh, all the projections are going to be coming out about the size of this year's crop. Uh, what are you calling uh, for as far as uh, production and what are your estimates our
3: produce, our survey based uh, poll, which we do August one of each year and then again in october one september or September one, October one, and November one, we ask our customers if you had to say right now what do you think the final yield will be so we 're not estimating usda we 're estimating final yield, and then we compile that into an estimate and our August first estimate really surprised me uh, on the soybean side at fifty four point two bushels I believe the crop can do that I was just surprised people were willing to say that on August 1st our corn estimate at one hundred eighty two point four bushels per acre that is above the average trade guess but the market is behaving like it is trading numbers very similar to ours in other words the trade seems to think that the crops probably are close to that big. They just don't expect USDA to go that far in this report. So if we get a number larger than what the average trade guesses are, closer to our numbers, it may not really be that bearish next week. If we get something smaller, that might be considered more friendly or a big sigh of relief in the markets.
1: Yeah, some are saying 184
3: yeah, absolutely, and I've heard numbers higher than that. What has really surprised me, and you know from the social media, it is taboo for a farmer to say how good his crops look on the social media. But when I published uh, yield, our yield estimates on Twitter, and I got the same people who criticized and say the yields are too high every year. They were there and they didn't disappoint me. But I was surprised at how many farmers reached out and said, I think you're too low. That spoke volumes to me.
1: Yeah, not only do they not want to say it on social media, they, a lot of times they won't even say it to you in private conversation. So, yeah, right. that, that, that gives you an idea that the, a lot of them think it's going to be a, a big crop, although we know there are those areas of concern, like in parts of Iowa.
3: Well, if you look at Iowa, and it certainly is dry in parts of Iowa, particularly west-central Iowa, uh, you've got uneven stands in uh, Illinois. We're seeing some of the typical tip back in various places. Nebraska has some problems, particularly in its dry land crop. I think those are the things that actually keep this corn crop from being in the high 180s. The 182.4 that we have sounds really high because we're not used to hearing yields in the 180s. But it's only 2.2 percent above trend. That's a very small increase over trend, and I think probably they're because of the, some of those problem areas. The soybean crop, granted, August is the critical month. A lot can so far. August is favorable for most areas. There are some dry pockets, of course, uh, but Minnesota to Ohio, this is the best soybean crop I've ever had from farmers.
1: So are we looking at a lot of grain going into the bins? That
3: certainly appears to be the case. We still have some left over from last year. And that's why the market's really not responding to the demand that we've been getting from China. And, of course, the big sale again announced this morning of soybeans because the market is now focused on the supply side of the balance sheet. I guess the good news is it's years like this when the trade really gets uh, focused on expectations for a big crop and a lot of times you'll put the harvest low in early um, but regardless we'll still have to find a place to put all those bushels and that'll play out in the basis market
1: mm-hmm. and uh, on the ethanol industry which has a great impact on the corn market what do you see happening there
3: Well, we did see a pullback in ethanol production this week, but the gasoline consumption continued to tick higher, and I was encouraged by that, and so I think that was probably more of an aberration on the ethanol side. We did have some ethanol plants that were making ethanol for hand sanitizers, but most of them are pulling back, and maybe that's a at play there in the, this week's reduction as well they've just been running into some issues there uh, too many complications and trying to produce those hand sanitizers without the odor and some of the scrubbing requirements that were necessary it wasn't practical for them so they're going back to fuel ethanol um, but overall I think we continue to grind higher it's not as high of numbers as what we would like to see uh, we really need to see the economy open up, and especially in states like California, Texas, and Florida, uh, get things open up and, and people driving again to consume that ethanol.
1: There's still a lot of questions about that. Just, just questions about everything uh, as we go into the fall, because it seems like there's still more questions and answers on what's going to happen with this virus
3: tremendous amount of money in the system, and right now that money, if you look at M1 money supply or M2 money supply exploding higher, right now that money seems to be go going into equities, into gold, into crude oil, but they seem to be shorting the ags versus everything else. At some point that may reverse, but for now that seems to be a safe play that the money flow is doing.
1: All right, Arlen, thanks a lot, and we'll see uh, how things play out uh, with China and these other areas as well. We'll talk again next week. Thank you.
3: Look forward to it.
1: Take care. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with StoneX. Yeah, we're getting into that uh, time of year where all the projections are going to be flying about the size of this year's crop. All right, up next, a significant uh, development that could increase corn demand corn usage. We'll tell you about it next here on AOA.
0: Information America's farmers and ranchers need
1: to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. The Department of Energy's Bioenergy Technologies Office has clarified that corn grain is an acceptable feedstock. What does this mean? Well, it means that starch-derived sugars, specifically starches from field feed corn, were clarified as acceptable. Let's find out the significance of this uh, ruling as we're joined now by the market development director for the national corn growers association sarah mckay sarah thank you for joining us explain this ruling and why it's so significant
4: hi good morning thank you for having us yeah so this was a pretty exciting achievement by the grower leaders that sit on the market development action team over at national corn growers association and what this means is um the department of energy for a while had taken um, an interpretation of section 932. I won't get into too many of the details, but essentially what this meant is that they interpreted um, the acceptable feedstocks as excluding corn grain because they felt that it would... It helped clarify that there was an abundance of corn and plenty to surround and that corn grain should be clarified as acceptable.
1: So what does this mean as far as uses? I mean, what could we see come from this?
4: Yeah, so one of the things that we identified when we were first learning about this is we talked to a lot of industry stakeholders, folks that were investing in technology, national labs, and that would have all these great technologies that could utilize corn based glucose, pathways, et cetera. Um, but they said that they couldn't actually um, do research that utilized corn based sugars because of the, this interpretation. So what we did is we went back and we said, okay, how do we? provide education to get this clarification. And so we took our grower leaders to um, to Washington, D.C. We had to meet with um, folks in the Department of Energy office and, and help answer those questions about the sustainability, the affordability, and the abundancy of corn. And it was through the work of our grower leaders really educating and clearing up some of these misconceptions that we were really excited that in the most recent funding opportunity announcement that they specifically clarified that starch derived from sugars, and they specifically called out field and feed corn um, as, as acceptable.
1: Yeah, some would say, why was this ever in question? But uh, the fact that there, there were these questions out there, that's what makes this uh, determination so significant that it's finally cleared this up.
4: Yeah, so the, the Department of Energy is actually one of the largest funders of, um, of research into Innovations to accelerate energy efficient plastics, um, fuels, technologies, et cetera. And the reason that this, you know, it was just a lot of outdated information about uh, feed fuel fuel, uh, land use change, the sustainability of corn in general. And so, as we um, we had actually put together a document that you can find on slash new uses that highlights these values of corn, um, corn as an industrial feedstock and really clarifies a lot of these misconceptions that. Um, that folks have that when they don't work in agriculture and corn in the day-to-day. We realize it was really important to to address these misconceptions so that we can consider corn for these new uses.
1: Very good. All right, Sarah, thanks a lot. Good good to have some positive news. and uh, It took a lot of work by a lot of people to get it done, but uh, glad that it did. Thank you very much for giving us the update.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a tremendous opportunity for folks like our Consider Corn Challenge winners, especially as we are ramping up for the third challenge. You know, when we look at our Consider Corn Challenge winners to date of the nine winners for the first two challenges, we can estimate about a 2.9 billion bushel impact if those um, technologies can get fully commercialized. And we're still in the pilot phases now, but tremendous opportunity to, to use up that corn.
1: Yep, significant indeed. All right. Sarah McKay, Market Development Director for the National Corn Growers Association. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. All right. As we continue to wait to see what Congress does on this coronavirus assistance package, just some thoughts. You know, it wasn't that long ago. It now seems like a much simpler time when people used to complain that rules and laws were decided in those small smoke-filled rooms in secret by a handful of politicians. We didn't like that. We thought transparency was what we needed, as if somehow being able to watch the legislative process would make it any better. It was a good thought, but it has not brought the hoped-for results. Instead, it has seemed to have created even more uncertainty in questions. More voices in the room and eyes on the procedures seemingly have only slowed the already slow legislative process to a crawl and created even more partisan bickering. Gone are the days when elected officials from both parties would get together and produce compromise legislation in a somewhat timely manner. Today, neither side wants to appear as if they gave in to the other and appear weak. Compromise is now seen as a sign of weakness. Leadership is no longer measured by results, but rather by how many media interviews get done and if a party's agenda is protected." It seems as if politicians today can't wait to get out of a hearing or meeting to get in front of a TV camera and microphone to give their spin on what's being discussed. I don't think this is what we had in mind when we called for more transparency. No doubt there are still elected officials in both parties that would like to work together and get things done, but they are often silenced by party leaders. Today, members of Congress quote party talking points or risk political punishment. Seldom do we hear politicians emerge from negotiations talking about possible paths forward, but rather about how the other side is keeping progress from being made. Much of this isn't really new. Partisan politics have been going on since our country was founded, but they seem to be getting worse, not better, and today's transparency only seems to confirm what we suspected all along. Instead of providing incentive to be more accountable, transparency now has instead provided a platform to justify a lack of accountability. The legislative process has often been compared to sausage-making. In other words, you probably won't like watching it made, but you'll like the end product. However, in today's politics, it seems not only do we not like seeing the process, but we are less and less satisfied with the result. Transparency has some advantages, no doubt, but it also makes us question if the ends ever really justify the means. So we'll see if they can come out, uh, work something out. But in the meantime, we'll continue to wait and watch to see what they do on this coronavirus assistance package, what it means for agriculture. We'll have an update on that on Monday and also on Monday, a report from the Sturgis Bike Rally. Have a great weekend, everyone. Stay safe. Join us again on Monday here on AOA.